0: Welcome to Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean text and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 160 of Lucretius Today. Today we're going to be discussing chapter 8 of Norman DeWitt's Epicurus and His Philosophy, which is entitled, Sensations, Anticipations, and Feelings. To try again to put us in context of where we are, we have been going through Chapter 7, which we just completed, Canon Reason and Nature. We dealt with some very deep issues of whether knowledge is possible and the relationship of reason versus nature in determining whether we think we have confidence in something to be true or not. This week, we're going to be going further into the details of Having established that knowledge is possible, we're going further into how you obtain knowledge with the sensations, anticipations, and feelings being the three categories of faculties that Epicurus identified nature has given us for this purpose. One of the major themes that we're going to continuously come back to is the issue of empiricism. Because many people out there, when they think about Epicurus, they have a couple of things in their mind that they identify with them, and they think that Epicurus was an empiricist. Now, our podcasts are not aimed at professional philosophers, and there's going to be a lot of people who don't even have a strong impression of what empiricism really means. So before we get too far into the discussion today, we're going to talk about what empiricism is and what the implications of it are. Because obviously, if something doesn't have any real-world implications, we're not all that interested in it. But in general, I would say that the big issue involved here is some people say that Epicurus, in being an empiricist, only believed those things that his senses could directly reveal to him. If he didn't see it or taste it or touch it, then he didn't believe it was true. And as DeWitt points out throughout this section, that's not true at all. Epicurus believed in atoms, for example. He thought that his conclusions pointed directly to the existence of atoms. And you don't see or touch or hear or smell atoms directly. You infer their existence from other evidence that you do see directly, but you never see an atom or touch it directly. So there's an important distinction here that Epicurus was using not only these natural faculties of the sensations, but he was taking the evidence from the sensations and reaching conclusions through deductive and other types of reasoning about the raw evidence. He was taking the circumstances of things that he could see and moving into conclusions about things that he could not see based on what he does see and feel and taste and touch and so forth. So there's a lot of implications of that, including potentially the biggest issue of all in our lives today in terms of facing religion, which is based on faith. And issues of people who take the position that faith can give you conclusions about things without any evidence whatsoever, or contrary to all the evidence, that you end up believing in things purely on faith rather than on any kind of evidence. And that obviously is not a position that Epicurus took. But the distinctions between the religious faith traditions versus Epicurus are very, very important. And they're really not fully explained by simply saying that Epicurus was an empiricist. So that takes us to the beginning of chapter 8, page 133 of Norman DeWitt's book, and the first point he makes is how there are indeed three criteria of truth in the Epicurean canon, as we've been discussing sensations, anticipations, and feelings, but there's a lot of difference in the amount of information that we have about Epicurus's positions on them, and a lot of misunderstanding takes place, especially in regard to anticipations. Cassius, that's probably a good point,
1: just to remind people of kind of the overarching structure of this book, which is, and he tells you in the beginning of the book that he's taking the synoptic approach to the book. It's true also that he takes the synoptic approach within each chapter of the book. So the first page and a half here is kind of the overview of the whole chapter that's coming. So I guess the main point I want to make here is that we're getting into some pretty deep stuff. So. If we get to the end of the episode today and people are just more confused than they were when they came into it, the hope is that by the time we get to the end of the chapter, which won't happen today, we'll be much better situated to
0: understand some of this stuff because it is quite intricate the way this chapter is structured. So let's start out with putting Epicurus in this big picture of this category of empiricist and empiricism. Before we go too much further, let's talk about empiricism in general, which name comes from an ancient philosopher by the name of Sextus Empiricus. Sextus is called Empiricus because he belonged to the
1: empirical school of medicine. There were three main schools of medicine, the rationalists, the empiricists, and the Methodists. But he was a skeptic, and as a skeptic, he was deeply involved in issues relating to epistemology.
0: What in the end does it really mean to be considered to be an empiricist? Empiricism, this is from Wikipedia,
1: is an epistemological theory, and that's what we're talking about today is epistemology, this whole chapter, that holds that knowledge or justification comes only or primarily
0: from sensory experience. And I see that there is a Wikipedia article on Sextus Empiricus himself, which talks about some of the same material that he raised concerns that applied to all types of knowledge. He doubted the validity of induction long before David Hume did and he raised a regress argument against all forms of reasoning. So even though we talk about him as being empiricist, it looks like he's really kind of grounded in skepticism.
1: Yeah, you... he was a Pyrrhonist, more basically. But again, Pyrrhonism, skepticism generally, is another school of philosophy whose primary focus is on epistemology. So it's no wonder, I guess, that they would be exploring different kinds and that if you are a skeptic, and by the way, David Hume, I think, was probably considered himself to be a skeptic, he wrote an essay on miracles, which is
0: worth reading on
1: miracles and why they don't happen.
0: Yeah, trying to keep everything relevant. We've talked a lot in this podcast in the past about skepticism and the idea that Pirro had that really nothing was knowable at all. But what Sextus Empiricus's name evokes and empiricism evokes today, it seems to me, is a more general attitude that basically everything you believe is your indicated, Joshua comes through the senses, and if the lack of sensation is essentially death, then if you're alive, then you're experiencing sensations. But there's a related issue of how strictly you apply that and basically what you do with the evidence of the senses. And one of the points of this chapter that we're going to be talking about here is how Epicurus obviously does not say that seeing is believing in a strict sense. You don't have to see something in order to believe it to be true, There's all sorts of examples of that. You can talk about the air, which you know exists because you see what happens when the wind is blowing or the view of atoms itself. You never see or touch an individual atom, and yet Epicurus is firmly convinced that they do exist based on evidence that he does observe through the senses. So the point is, how do you take the information from the senses and rely on them, but also reach conclusions, at least at times, about things that are unseen and unverifiable directly through the senses? Epicurus certainly does that, and people will throw around the phrase, "quote all sensations are true." As if Epicurus was so focused on taking what the senses say and nothing else that he rejects all kinds of reasoning and logic completely. Again, guess that gets back into the discussion from last chapter. Epicurus does not reject all forms of reasoning by any stretch of the imagination. And even to the extent of logic, you've got Epicurus using all sorts of logical arguments in support of his positions. So as we begin the chapter, this issue of where Epicurus fits in these schools is extremely important. Isn't John Locke also considered to be an empiricist?
1: Yeah, yeah. Empiricism today is probably most thought about, I guess, most talked about, particularly in the philosophy of science, where physical evidence is given precedence over most other sources of knowledge. Epicurus is going to go on to talk about the anticipations and how we have maybe an innate sense of justice. That's not the kind of thing that you can really measure. And if you can't measure it, if you can't reproduce the results, then it's simply not useful for science. Epicurus was not really a scientist. He was a philosopher in a much more general spirit of that word. He wasn't just a philosopher of science. So empiricism does not answer to his total purpose in philosophy. But it's it's one of the underlying I guess, really the main approach of science. Now, Martin talks about how we expand on that with things like modeling, which I don't have a very good grasp on, but maybe Martin can explain that a little bit better.
0: Yeah, because if you just go by senses, you don't really gain knowledge. You just have a collection of facts and that's it. From the collection of facts, you cannot derive much. And so to organize these, these facts into something where you can derive something on, you establish a model. So, if we simplify it, the first step would be to make one tentative model out of the empirical effects uh, we have, and then to test it with experiments. No? So, the, that means we gather more empirical effects. And it's then this interplay, which is then the scientific me- methodology. So, and empiricism will just emphasize uh, this collection of facts and neglect the modeling. And that one is basically useless to people.
1: It occurs to me that this ambiguity between senses and modeling is a source of an argument that I see made by particularly creationists or proponents of intelligent design where they'll say things like no one has ever seen a frog evolve into a human or something like that. No one has ever seen a crocodile evolve into a duck and furnish that as if it's evidence that the theory of evolution is false. What they've simply not done is understood really what's going on in the theory of evolution, that it happens over a long range of time, and it wouldn't be expected that you see an evolution in one individual from one species to another. In fact, if that did happen, it wouldn't prove evolution right. It would prove it wrong. So anyway, one of my hobby
0: horses. Joshua, yes. And a moment ago, you talked about that you can't measure anticipations. And I I think you probably also have the issue that if there's three legs of the Epicurean canon in terms of feelings, it's very difficult or even impossible to measure feelings either. So we need to struggle through it, I think, because what Epicurus was attempting to do and what we would like to have for our own lives is sort of a practical, prudent, common sense, accessible, understanding of the issues that are involved here, because a lot of people, when confronted with these religious arguments about faith and believing all these things that you have no evidence whatsoever for, they instinctively can tell that that's not a very smart way of approaching things. But as often happens, you don't want to swing the pendulum too far back to the other side of saying that you're not going to believe anything unless you can see it and touch it for yourself. That would not be a logical, reasonable approach to life because you simply have to make decisions and reach at least tentative conclusions about things that you cannot see or touch directly. All sorts of issues in life involve that. So you have to have a practical understanding of how these issues fit together. Again, like Epicure says in the letter to Herodotus, you don't have to access all the details of these arguments all the time. But you need to be able to almost instantly have a general understanding of the issues that are involved and know what the right direction is. I don't know how far we can get into it or should get into it, but I think we've talked about in the past a little bit how these Benthamite utilitarians, they were really attempting to come up with a science of pleasures and pains and sort of objectively quantify things. And somehow then extend that into a more objective science of politics, even, or social interactions. But I think we all come to the conclusion that it's basically impossible to mathematically quantify feelings and things like that. So when, again, Epicurus is referred to as an empiricist, we have to keep this balance and this understanding that, yes, the sensations and the anticipations and feelings are the raw data that we go back to as frequently as we can. But we just don't limit ourselves only to the data that they produce. We produce models, as Martin was saying, or we recognize patterns in in the data and we act based on those, even though we don't see every piece of data that we might like to see. And we react if things
1: change, right? Absolutely. If if, oh, I get pleasure out of eating ice cream, well, now my mission, right, if I think pleasure is the good, is to just eat as much ice cream Mm -hmm. as it's humanly possible to do. The pleasure involved quickly changes into something
0: not unlike suffering in that case. And I think that's one of the real huge errors that people end up running into as they try to apply Epicurus in a social or even a political way, in that everybody has different feelings of pleasure and pain, and they end up ranking their activities of life in a very individual basis. And you use the example of ice cream. We can say people generally like ice cream, but there are people who don't like ice cream. There are people who like one flavor versus another. And it's because of the nature of the individual humans. You can generalize, certainly, but the generalization is just sort of a statistical model, and it really doesn't tell you in an individual case whether that person is actually feeling pleasure or pain. And the very same thing that they find pleasure in at one moment, they might find to be very painful another moment. The idea that you can take logic and reason and extrapolate from a current set of facts to a universal conclusion that's going to apply to everybody all the time and everywhere, is just not going to happen. It's impossible to do. And when you attempt to do it, you end up causing all sorts of damage see, to yourself and to other people because you've fundamentally failed to understand the way the universe works, the way that individuals work, that these sensations, anticipations, and feelings are just very individual from person to person. In a common definition of empiricism, you can to some extent come up with methods of measuring sight, sound. You can rank things in terms of color and volume and all sorts of other different specifications so you can end up measuring them but you can't end up measuring to any real degree the other two legs of the canon pleasure and pain and the anticipations and so two of the three legs of the epicurean canon are outside of what we would call empiricism So it's as much an error to think of Epicurus as an empiricist as it is, in my view, to think of Epicurus as strictly a hedonist. In each case, Epicurus had his own very well-developed and very subtle set of views on these topics. If you end up just putting them in boxes of empiricism or hedonism, you miss tremendous amounts of details of the philosophy. Joshua, I think the next point is whether these three are basically three aspects of a single faculty or whether they are totally discrete and function separately from each other and to what extent they act sort of together or in sequence. He ends up coming to the conclusion that they are neither three aspects of a single capacity, nor are they totally discrete, totally functioning separately. The conclusion is that they do act Together and in sequence. Are sensations, anticipations, and feelings the three sides of a single triangle, for example, or are they totally discrete things which are acting totally independently of each other? He says reacting, actually. Either verb, are they discrete, (laughs) separate entities? What he says here is that all three
1: may be components of a given reaction, but they occur in a sequence. So sensation comes first, in a sense, or at least it's the most proximate to the kind of stimulus that we as humans deal with all the time. Things we see, things we touch, taste, hear, smell. So he says that sensation is irrational and merely registers a quality. Now, that word, that's a whole barrel of snakes right there, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. the whole qualities versus property thing, that'll come later in the book, and we'll deal with that at length. But he says sensation registers as a quality for example sweetness it is then the intelligence that says this is honey is that the anticipations and then he goes on to say and it is the feelings that report i like it or i don't like it so the stimulus is the same the three actions occur in a sequence but pretty close to
0: simultaneously Yeah, Joshua, I picked out that sentence myself as particularly important, and we probably ought to talk about that for a few minutes because that really gets to the bottom of it. I agree with you when he says it's the intelligence that says this is honey. He's certainly analogizing intelligence to anticipations and the function that he's talking about with anticipation surely must be wrapped up from his point of view in the intelligence here. But that way of looking at things as three aspects of a single process is really important to think about the implications of when he says it's irrational and registers equality, he's going to develop that into a discussion of how the sensations don't have their own opinions about things. They just simply report things automatically. And then when he says that the intelligence says this is honey, that's this whole process of analysis that clearly is not inborn as a baby. You don't know what honey is as a baby. But there is a part of you which gives you the ability to put together things that are, again, I used the word earlier, pattern recognition. You begin to see things over time as connections. So there's some kind of a connectedness faculty that, again, not inborn with you as a complete idea when you're born, all the different connections you're going to make throughout your life. But you're apparently born with this ability to make these connections that you have to have or else you're not going to be able to make the connections in the first place. And then the feelings, which is what we talk about as pain or pleasure, as being whether you find it desirable or undesirable. And we will defer for the moment answering the question about whether you can do one of these things without the other. But I think we're probably going to need to return to that at some point. Can you anticipate things that you have never felt or sensed? Can you sense things that don't involve anticipations and feelings And I guess the third one would be, can you anticipate things that you can neither feel nor sense? That's going to lead to some interesting discussions beyond the scope of where we are today, but we will come back to that now that we've raised it. Yeah, we have enough to talk about, like when
1: DeWitt offers this sentence, it is positively known that Epicurus postulated the existence of an innate sense of justice and called this anticipation.
0: Yes, I think that's the principal doctrines as to justice And if I remember correctly, there's other examples, I think, in terms of time and perhaps the issues of divinity. And of course, there's a big issue when DeWitt says, is it innate or not? Since we've been talking a lot about empiricism, one of the ideas
1: traditionally associated with empiricism was this idea of the blank slate or tabula rasa, the idea that the human mind at birth is just a blank canvas waiting to be filled with stuff. Epicurus according to DeWitt here, seems to not take that direct approach. He seems to think that due to the way that our species came about, due to the development of our minds, due to our particular orientation to the physical world, we come with certain faculties, certain kinds of maybe knowledge. Can we call it knowledge? When he talks about justice, that's not really about knowledge, is it? that's more about judgment. But it's the idea that some of this stuff is instinctive, right? And you can look to animals to see that as well. In fact, his main argument, which is that pleasure is the proper goal of life, is an argument that he partially derives from observing newborn animals.
0: Yes, Joshua, thank you very much for bringing that up, because that really is one of the big themes of all this. We've made the point that Epicurus should not really be considered to be an empiricist, but that point may not really have sunk in. People may be still thinking to themselves, who cares whether he's an empiricist or not? You can begin to understand the issue of faith versus sensation and how to deal with evidence. But there's this related and even equally or more important issue of are you born with any kind of ideas in your mind or not? You know, Plato was talking about that you potentially have been reincarnated and that your whole life is a process of attempting to remember and identify these things that you knew in a prior life or prior dimension. And so that's a hugely important aspect of Platonic philosophy that relates to divinity and so forth. But it continued to be debated. And John Locke, I think that that's what he's associated with as well. Aristotle is associated with rejecting Plato's recollection theories and i believe the blank slate issue is traceable back to aristotle who in rejecting plato came back with this idea that you're basically not born with anything previously and everything that you end up thinking is a result of things that happen to you directly through your sensation experiences in your life which ends up being translated by John Locke later on as to into a whole theory of government and has tremendous implications in terms of education and dealing with people and whether people can change and all sorts of of important social issues. But before you get to those applications, you have to deal with this initial question of, are you born with any ideas or knowledge at all? And frankly, I'll go ahead and state one criticism I have of DeWitt's presentation here is I do think that he ends up sometimes talking about innate ideas. Just like an eye is born without ever having seen anything, this sense of anticipations can be born without ever having anticipated anything. But to allege that you're born with a particular bit of information or a particular opinion, basically, or an idea or a particular knowledge, I think that's a dangerous direction to go in, and I would not say that Epicurus suggests that. And I don't really think that DeWitt goes too far in that direction, but Sometimes some of the language he uses would imply that you're born with an idea, and ideas are probably fully formed knowledge, which I think you can rule that out. Yeah, well, let me say, first of all, that that the reason that this
1: issue of empiricism is so important is because I'm on the Wikipedia page for Epicurus right now, and it says exactly this. Epicurus was an empiricist, meaning he believed that only the senses are a reliable source of knowledge about the world. So it's important because there is a lot of confusion on this point. As to the issue of justice, something that you can notice with children, apparently, I don't have children, but things I read about children is that from a certain rather young age, if you have a cookie, for example, and you break it in two, one part is really small and the other part is big. If the kid is young enough, or if the children are young enough, you can give them each one part of the cookie. And even if they're completely different in size, they'll still have the idea that that's fair because there's two pieces and they got one and their brother got the other one. Mm -hmm. As they get a little bit older, that trick doesn't work anymore. So maybe if what you're born with is a sort of a seed of a faculty that grows over time and presumably grows regardless of culture or education or anything like that, I don't think children depending on where you go in the world, are going to be all that different to each other. They're still going to have the same basic issue of, by the time they get to a certain age, they're going to want half the cookie, not just one piece of the cookie.
0: And you know, Joshua, at the end of the last episode, I quoted a statement from a man named Jackson Barwis from a book called Dialogues on Innate Principles. And this issue that we're talking about now is exactly what that book that he wrote was directed to, He wrote it entirely against John Locke in criticism of John Locke's presentation of a blank slate theory. And I do recommend this book for anybody who wants to pursue this, Dialogues on Innate Principles. I'll link it in the show notes. But the point that he makes that's relevant to this current conversation, his book is entitled Dialogue on Innate Principles, with emphasis, of course, on the word principles. He goes into this in great detail, but one sentence that's in front of me right now is, quote, ideas simply considered are very different things from principles. And he goes into a lot of argument about that. You know, you can be born with principles of operation like an eye has. We can at least look at an eye or an ear or the different parts of the body and study it and realize that it operates using set processes that cause it to operate in the way it does. And obviously, at some level, we are born with a faculty of pleasure and pain, which is not decided by us consciously as we grow. It can be influenced, but we are born with a feeling of pleasure and pain, which has come from somewhere. Some things are pleasing to us and some things are painful to us from the moment we're born and even beforehand. And so you're born not with any ideas of anything or knowledge of anything, But you're born in a way genetically that everything that constitutes you operates in a particular way that is not chosen by you after you've been born. You're already born in a sense. I'd like to use the analogy of a computer. A computer has an operating system that allows it to interact with its disk drives and computers and receive information through cameras and so forth. But it doesn't do anything with at the very beginning. It doesn't process that into ideas until you've got other types of programs laid on on top of the operating system itself. So it's very important, I think, to drill down and use the right words and to say that you're born with a particular idea in your mind is probably going too far. But to say that you're born with a brain that operates in a particular way, with senses that operate in a particular way, from my point of view anyway, obviously correct. Distinguishing the two of those is important to do.
1: Yeah. And the way DeWitt puts that here is he says that injustice hurts and it is the feelings that register this fact. So it's not like you're born with an elaborate sense of right and wrong that's not the way it works it's the feeling reaction that you have in the face of these things that sort of defines how you respond to them and this is probably noticeable even in animals i don't know if we can notice feelings of pleasure and pain at quite this level but chimpanzees for example if you give all chimpanzees the celery they'll all be happy but if you give two of them the celery and one of them grapes Well, the grapes are better than the celery, Then they prefer the grapes to the celery. So the two that got celery instead of grapes are going to be unhappy because they didn't get the grape. It sounds kind of like a petty thing to squabble about, but this sort of gets at the heart of all of these conversations. What we've observed going on in animals, we kind of can see that in ourselves. Another example of that, also with chimpanzees is one of their species is in a cage, but the others are free, and you give the free ones food, they will sometimes actually share their food with the one in the cage who doesn't have any. Part of our heritage as a species and as apes is that we are in many ways tribal and have been selected genetically, naturally, with that in view that's the wrong way to put it i shouldn't say with that in view but it's the consequence of that that our adaptation to our environment is improved with other people that's true today you know if you're going hiking in dangerous country you immediately improve your chances of survival if something goes wrong if there's just another person there someone who can you know if you fall someone who can go for help if you fall unconscious or something they can protect you they can light a fire so all of these things are selected for In the group, in the individual, because they improve the survivability of the group for the individual.
0: Joshua, that reminds me of a comment made by Emily Austin in her interview with us about a distinction between the Stoics and the Epicureans on this point of friendship, in that the Stoics contended that you don't even need friends, you don't need anything, all you basically need to do is to pursue virtue control your mind, and friends are potentially just one of those indifferent things out there that you may or may not need in a particular circumstance. Everything is just a tool to virtue from the stoic point of view. And expanding that analogy a little bit further, that's one of the implications of this chapter as well. If you're born a blank slate, totally, and everything that you end up thinking as your life goes on is totally determined by your own thoughts from zero, without any influences from your genetics and from the way the brain is structured, the way that pleasure and pain operate, then you're going to, I think, be impelled towards the conclusion that everything in life is just a matter of willpower, that you can do basically anything, you can overcome anything, you can deal with anything simply by willpower and thinking about it. Which I think is sort of an attitude that's associated with stoicism, that if you're suffering, if you're in a bad situation, you're there because you've let it bother you. You've let it get to you when you really should just be aloof and above everything that goes on around you. And so if you're letting something bother you, that's a fault or a sin of your own lack of discipline of your thought processes. And that attitude that the Stoics would have, that's why they're so interested in psychology, is because they really attempt to manipulate everything around them almost purely in psychological terms of dealing with everything by simply thinking about it. But that's, I think, very different from Epicurus' approach because he's built in here early in the process of, of analyzing how we think about things. He's built in two issues, anticipations, and feelings that are not determined by what you think about after you're born. He's built into the canon two aspects of life that are influenced by what happens to you and what you think about things. But you're born with these faculties that are disposing you in particular directions as to what you feel to be pleasurable, what you feel to be painful, how you recognize things in terms of pattern recognitions or intuitions. And so I think that leads to significant implications for distinguishing Epicurus from, again, distinguishing from the Stoics or people who believe in blank slate, and you can distinguish them from the strict Platonist position of an ideal form world that you're trying to recall after you're born. You're not looking to another dimension or to a divine creator for this influence in your life. You're looking to your heritage as a human being, your genetics, your evolution, the things that have evolved over tremendous periods of time. Some of which are in your control, some of which are not in your control, which Epicurus talks about in terms of free will. You have to know the difference between what you can control, what you can't control, and you deal with the reality that you observe and study through your study of nature. We're not going very fast through this chapter so far, but this is, I think, very important material for us to bring out the implications. It seems, you you know, you can skim through somebody's book and say, here's a chapter on canonics and think, oh my God, there's no way in the world I'm going to spend any time reading anything about epistemology or canonics or something that nobody would ever have any interest in at all. But they have tremendous implications when you think about them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so where we are now, we're still in the very introductory section of chapter eight, and I don't think we're going to get much further than that today. And maybe we should begin to bring today's session to a landing by emphasizing this point that DeWitt makes at the bottom of page 133. He says quote, "When once the criteria have been recognized as three distinct reactions occurring in close sequence, the next point is to recognize the general approach of Epicurus to the problem of the canon as being biological, or more precisely, genetic. This attitude reflects the contemporary increase in the interest of the study of biology, which included animal behavior. The starting point is the behavior of the newly born, whether brute or human, which reach out for pleasure and shrink from pain. Of course, we've talked about that many times. That is mostly recorded for us in the Torquatus narrative about how Epicurus held that it's not necessary or appropriate to try to Prove that pleasure is desirable using abstract logic. That the ultimate proof of pleasure being desirable comes from observing how young animals operate, that they all pursue pleasure and avoid pain naturally, instinctively, so to speak, intuitively. These words like that are part of why we're having this discussion. People throw around words like instinct all the time. Do beavers build dams totally by instinct? If you take a baby beaver who's just born and separate him from his parents, is that beaver going to build dams later, or just is he simply observing what his parents have done? Can you take the beaver out of the family and still have dams later on in life? Migratory birds, same thing in terms of migratory patterns. There are questions about how birds do that. Do they have a built-in ability to determine magnetic fields and know where north is that type of thing. And in fact, related to that would be people often talk about when we mention the five senses that there are other senses beyond five that science has identified over the years. I think people will talk about the sense of balance being one of them. And I know that there are others as well. Where I'm going with it in this context Is that Epicurus is attempting to determine what nature has given us as guidance systems, as contacts with reality. Ultimately, the only guidance system or choice and avoidance system is pleasure and pain. But whether there's a sense of balance, whether there's a sense of magnetism in certain animals that they're able to navigate through connections with reality that we currently don't understand, Epicurus is studying those in studying nature. And this gets back to this issue of nature being the criterion rather than just logic and reason. He's ultimately always looking to see what nature has provided to us before we start to pull together a philosophy of how we should live our lives.
1: Yeah, DeWitt mentions here the contemporary interest in biology. The early philosophers seem not to have considered the lives of animals very closely until about the time, I guess, of Aristotle and Plato to some degree, but in many ways they were probably more interested in categorizing and defining. You've got that famous moment where Diogenes the Cynic hears Plato's definition of a man as a featherless biped and then plucks a chicken and takes it in and presents it as Plato's man. Epicurus is primarily interested in animals and in their lives because of what he thinks that can tell us about humans and our lives,
0: it seems to me. That's right. I think you've got the analogy there. As you talk about animals, I'm thinking of horses for some reason. Isn't the classic question of Plato that he asserted that you can never really know that this animal standing in front of you is a horse, but there is a horse that exists in another dimension and you can define that horse through logic and through your application of the mind. And that's what to some extent apparently Aristotle was reacting against and spent a lot of time coming up with categories and talking about how to observe the differences between types of animals and, and somehow divide them down into species and genuses and so forth. Those kind of categorization processes are frequently associated with Aristotle. And that's much more related to the Epicurean approach that you are looking at the details of what's in front of you to come to conclusions about them. But the difference there between Aristotle. And Epicurus, to my understanding, is, is that Aristotle ended up concluding that there are essences that end up being within the horse, for example, that define him as being a horse, which is not the approach that Epicurus ends up taking. He doesn't think that there are either ideal forms in another dimension or essences within things. But that what you have to do is make your observations and process the emergent properties of the bodies that form from the atoms and analyze it from an atomistic scientific perspective, realizing that everything is just dependent upon the particular atoms that are combining at a particular time and place in a particular way. We probably won't dig the hole much deeper today on illustrations like I threw out a few minutes ago about whether beavers can build dams if they've been separated at birth from their parents or whether birds really have an ability to detect magnetic fields. But I have to ask, do you have any comments on any of those that we should include today? It all ends up relating to this issue of blank slate.
1: Yeah, I've read about certain species of ants. And what they'll do is they'll start at the hive, and they'll go out looking for food or whatever, and they'll walk a certain amount of distance in this direction, and then they'll turn an angle and walk a certain amount of distances in this direction. And then when they're done... They know what bearing and distance they have to take to get back to their hive. Things like that seem to suggest certain faculties that humans don't have or that we've lost from being, I guess, removed from nature in many ways. I think I've told this story before, but my aunt and uncle have a goat farm in Florida, kind of a hobby farm. My grandfather was there one day sort of tending to the goats, and all of a sudden all the goats just sort of get up and start running And they run up under the eaves of the shed and he's watching them go and he's thinking, what are they doing? And 10 seconds later, the sky opens up and it starts raining. So that's another issue, actually, that Epicurus talks about and Lucretius talks about, which is this issue of particularly whether animals sort of know the advance of the seasons. How have we talked about that in the past?
0: I think it's in the letter to Pythocles where Epicurus says that gods don't sit around watching for owls or birds to move and then follow their inclinations to make things happen. It particularly is memorable because he says something like nobody of any intelligence would do anything like that, much less a god. I believe that's in the letter to Pythocles. And completely unrelated to anything we're talking about today. Well, but see, I don't think it is. I think that the way we can relate this to reality and practicality is, are we going to sit around, just like the end of Torquatus, are we going to do what Plato suggested and just study geometry as the path to truth? Or are we going to go for pure reason, contemplating absolute truth? Is that the direction to happiness? Is that the direction to a proper life? Or is the proper life, the best life, the happy life, is the direction to the happy life more involved in studying nature, which includes us, to study our own faculties, our own senses, to understand how our senses work, to understand how our anticipations work, to understand how our feelings work, and to recognize that our happiness depends on us understanding ourselves so that we can then use that information to live the best life possible in a practical way? Or again, is your time best spent contemplating music and geometry for the sake of learning the harmony of the spheres? I think where we're going here stems from those questions, and it's extremely practical and extremely important because it's Epicurus who was right. Pure reason contemplating absolute nature is a bunch of junk. A lot of abstract philosophy, If you enjoy it, then it's fine because you're getting pleasure out of it. But it's not practical. It's not prudent for most people to pursue these details of abstract philosophy. And it's a dead end for them. But they still need an understanding of how the world works or else they're going to think that they're going to hell and that the rain is caused because God's mad at them. They have to have an understanding of all these things. And the way to get that understanding is not through abstract logic, but through studying nature. And the important aspect of our nature is the way we operate sensations, anticipations, and feelings. If you don't think about these things and work to understand them, you can never put the information to use and reach any conclusions. You can never be confident of anything. You can never even know if knowledge is possible. You can never even do anything but talk to people who are standing on their head and talking nonsense to you. So it's incredibly practical. It's just that it's sometimes very difficult to get past the initial reluctance to talk about these things. Because as I was talking to Martin earlier this morning, anybody who gets introduced to philosophy nowadays gets introduced to these people like Hegel and Heidegger and talking about all these 20th century analytical approaches to asking questions. I think we mentioned in a recent discussion, there's a movie out there called Waking Life that I saw recently, which is just a sequence of talking to these modern philosophers who just talk nonsense, at least in the view of most ordinary people again if you enjoy it then you get pleasure out of it you should do it just because it gives you pleasure but most people do not get pleasure out of what appears to them to be just nonsense after nonsense after nonsense chained together for reasons that they can't even begin to understand why anybody would think about going in that direction but every individual has sensations every individual has feelings of pleasure and pain And every individual is born with some type of pattern recognition or intuitive faculty that leads them in particular directions. And understanding those is going to be the key to living your life in a more productive way. How's that for a rant to begin to end today? (laughs) Not bad so far
1: as it goes. The only thing I could really add to that would be to say that My attempt to summarize where we are in our discussion of epistemology over the last, I don't know, six episodes, something like that, is that we've now ruled out the idea that Epicurus was a rationalist, that he put reason in a primary position when it comes to how we know things. We ruled out the idea that he was an empiricist, that he believed that it was only the senses that gave us reliable information and gave us the information that we know. And the other one that we've talked about, I don't know if we've talked about it a whole lot in this discussion so far on the DeWitt book, is the issue of skepticism. I feel like we talked about that a little bit probably earlier on, but Pyrrhonism is the other sort of main branch of epistemology that Epicurus decisively rejects. So our project going forward, we've rolled out now rationalism, empiricism, and skepticism is to figure out exactly what Epicurean epistemology looks like. And for more detail on that, we're going to have to spend a lot of time on the coming chapters.
0: And those categories of approaches that you've just listed there, it seems to me, are probably in many ways dominant in the Western world and have been dominant for many years. Rationalism, empiricism, skepticism. People might not necessarily use those particular terms in everyday life to describe what they think themselves, but absolutely Those are useful terms because people, whether consciously or not, are in fact applying ideas that come from those schools. And so if all you think about Epicurus is that he liked pleasure and didn't like pain, you haven't scratched the surface of what Epicurean philosophy is all about and why he's important. You'll never understand the significance of why people in the ancient world loved him so much, why other people in the ancient world hated him so much, because he was producing his own approach to these issues that was very different from most other of the dominant schools of his time and that are dominant for the past 2,000 years. Unwinding these details begins to unwind for you the significance of Epicurus in the history of philosophy and why he's such a polarizing and important figure. Martin, any closing thoughts for the day? I have nothing to
1: add. The only other thing I had to talk about, I was recently on YouTube and just wasting time watching just random clips, and somehow I ended up on this scene from The Matrix, and The Matrix is rife with all the stuff that we've just been talking about and and where it goes wrong. It's the scene where he goes to the Oracle and meets this little kid dressed in, like, monk's robes or whatever who's bending the spoon, And the little kid says, don't try to bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, try to realize the truth, that there is no spoon. And then I made the mistake of looking at the comment section. And, (laughs) you know, people will just say any old nonsense about anything as if it has any bearing on our lives or can do anything to make us live better. And that's the whole problem with epistemology is if you don't have a good understanding of where your knowledge comes from and how you know the things you think you know, you're just liable to fall for any old nonsense. And you know, we've all been there, <laughs> probably. I've, I've certainly gone through my fair share of bad ideas in my day, but if you have no method, if you have no ability to sift ideas and come up with which ones work and which ones don't, you're just totally in the dark. That's what Lucretius said. He said, life is one long struggle in the dark. That's probably not true for everybody because some people have ways of dealing with these problems and it has to do with being precise, more precise than most people are comfortable with about language, about sources of knowledge and and how to evaluate them. And most people just don't want to do that work. And and I'm probably resistant to that in, in many ways myself, but it's something that I need to get better at. One of the things I said to myself before this chapter was, my goal is to understand the anticipations because I really am not very good at that. So hopefully by the end of this chapter, I really get a good grasp on them.
0: Joshua, that was a great way to close the episode today. I couldn't say most of that any better. I can say any of that any better than what you just said. So I'm not going to try. I'll just repeat that we are going to go next week into more detail on the sensations and then more detail on this discussion of whether Epicurus was an empiricist or not in much more detail than we've gone today. All of which has the goal of helping people have a common sense understanding of these issues, the ability to apply general principles of Epicurus' approach to their own lives and live more happily as a result. We are not here to go into philosophy for the sake of philosophy, detail for the sake of detail, argument for the sake of argument abstraction for the sake of abstraction. Believe it or not, we're here to have a life of pleasure and have fun doing it. Hopefully, our attempts to go through this material will be of use to our listeners as we go forward. So with that, we'll come back in a week. These are very interesting topics that are very difficult to discuss, but we have the forum at epicureanfriends.com. Anybody who has questions, comments, examples they'd like to throw out, you're welcome to drop by every week, of course. We'll have a thread set up for this episode and look forward to seeing your comments. And then we'll be back in a week. Thank you for your time today. And we'll talk to you then. Bye.